From KLIN Radio and the Lincoln Independent Business Association, this is the Lincoln Business Beat, a weekly summary of news affecting area business and a review of interesting topics and issues. Along with Legal Policy and Research Coordinator Carter Teal, I'm Mark Vail. Glad to have you joining us. Lincoln Business Beat is made possible by the 1890 Initiative. Visit 1890nebraska.com, where 100% of your donation goes directly to Husker student-athletes. Carter, uh, you've uh, been doing some testimony at the Unicameral. We hit the halfway point earlier this week, uh, the uh, the 60-day session, short session, uh, but a lot going on. What were you testifying on? Uh, Yeah, it has been a very busy week. Um, Actually, last week I came back from uh, influenza and just sort of had to buckle up and hit the ground running because there was some very interesting bills that came up. Uh, Just a few of them that we can go over. LB 1401, introduced by Senator Ballard, uh, that is going to appropriate $30 million in ARPA funding over the next two years for the East Beltway's construction. And that would probably be the planning and all of that, that amount of money over the two-year process. Well, here's the thing about that. You know, there was a lot of support for the bill because everybody in Lincoln, everybody in Lancaster County, and everybody in Waverly really wants to see this road's construction as soon as possible. But there was one neutral testifier and that was Vicki Kramer from the uh, – she's the director for the State Highway Commission. And her concern with this was that where the project is at right now, because it's in such an early stage, that there would only be realistically $1 to $2 million able to be used from that ARPA funding. And if you don't know about ARPA funding, American Rescue Plan Act funding during COVID – Those funds have an expiration date. They need to be delegated. Uh, They need to be delegated by the end of this year, 2024, and they need to be spent by the end of 2025. Okay, so if you don't spend them, they go back to the federal government. So this will fast track the the initial phase of uh, at East Beltway then? At the least, it will do that. And the county has a difference of opinion on how much money can be used. So we'll we'll pay attention to it. And we'll see what the final uh, legislation ends up. But I think, too, we've got to say that the success and the the timeliness of the South Beltway has certainly made the East Beltway more likely as a result because it, it just was put in so quickly and it's done so much. They connect. <laughs> yeah. LB 922, another one. Yeah, this one's very interesting. Uh, Senator Terrell McKinney brought this one forward, testified on it yesterday. The Pro- Probationer and Parolee Business Empowerment Act. Um, the Platt Institute has been very vocal over the past couple of years, proclaiming that these sorts of individuals are the quote-unquote hidden workforce, and that equipping them with the resources, the tools necessary to succeed in the economic environment is a big key into improving Nebraska's overall economic output. And so what this bill does is provide some grant funding to eligible parolees and probationers who meet certain criteria and are either owning or executively directing their own business. 
It'll be 1324. I have not heard anything on this until uh, you put it on the list today. The Child Tax Credit Act. What uh, does that entail and what's the status? Yeah, introduced by Senator Conrad, what it would do is give an income tax credit of $1,000 per qualifying child under six years old. There are some requirements, uh, income level threshold, depending on how you're filing your taxes. Basically, if you're filing married, filing jointly, uh, the threshold is $111,000. And so what it does is uh, once, once you reach that threshold, you can still get some of the credit, but it is subtracted. It's prorated. Uh, yeah. So forward. our testimony on it was we support it. We love what it's doing because we've talked about on the podcast before how lack of child care and the expense of it is a big driver in the brain drain, people leaving the workforce. And so in addition to that, we thought it would be appropriate for there to be a sliding scale based on the income so that the grant funding could be attributed proportionally based on that income rather than a strict threshold upon which the uh, income tax tax credit would diminish. I don't think we've had a Lincoln Business Beat episode in the past many, many months. We haven't talked about property tax, either transformational <laughs> relief or something on property tax. And it was uh, talked about this last week. Well, we may have hit some things here and there in passing, but LB 1367 introduced by Senator John Kavanaugh from Omaha is the Property Tax Circuit Breaker Act. What it does is offer a income tax credit rebate of 50% for property taxes paid over 200% of the average single-family residence in the principal county. Okay, so when your property taxes exceed that 200% of the average, you get 50% of that back through an income tax credit. However, what we noticed with the previous effort from last year about the property tax relief through the income tax credit is that there was a portion of it that went unclaimed because when people were filing their income tax credits or when they were filing their income taxes, they weren't aware that they qualified for that refund. So what we suggested was that if there was a way for the credit to be automatically dispersed on the income tax return, we would support that, but only if the administrative burden of cross-referencing the data and delivering that automatic disbursement was still worth it because of the relief offered. One other uh, little note on property taxes uh, and the discussions going forward at the Leba luncheon where Pat Condon spoke. He did mention the fact that he was involved with some of the discussions on the Section 42 housing uh, discussions. I don't think that's uh, done with all its hearings and everything, but at least they're, they're moving that forward a little bit. Have you heard anything new? Because we've discussed that in depth. Well, actually, in fact, this morning at the county board staff meeting during their legislative update that was brought up, and they sounded very hopeful. The one thing that was of concern was that NACO, out of all people who has been pretty uh, like-minded with the Lancaster County Board, 
they testified in a neutral capacity on Senator Bostar's LB 1217, which was, you know, providing that fractional exemption for the uh, affordable housing market. And they mentioned specifically, quote unquote, think twice about this bill. So a lot of the stuff is so undetermined right now because it can be repackaged, it can be amended. And once it gets out to the floor, you don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, it's just like we we had the filibuster this week on yep. the uh, uh, new sentencing. That, mm-hmm. uh, I believe it was Senator Boson, uh, Boson uh, picked up from Senator Geis from last year. So, yeah, once it hits the floor, it, <laughs> it can hit the fan, yeah. so to speak. Assembled Lincoln had an open house earlier this week, actually on uh, the uh, President's Day holiday evening, uh, going over the possibilities for downtown convention center. Yes, it was very interesting. Uh, Down at the Park Middle School downtown, there was four different exhibits that members from the committee itself, Assemble Lincoln, were there to oversee visual aids to help them. One considering the projections that CSL Consulting Group did that evaluated how much the convention center would be used and how much it would affect the local economy. Another one on the turnback taxes, how the convention center will be funded, its construction, how that would work out, and then the timeline and p- potential sites for the convention center, along with one expo that was representatives from Legends Consulting themselves. Okay, so that process moving forward. And, and do we have any kind of an estimated timeline? Yeah, actually, it's interesting. There's some requests for proposals that are going to be submitted by the deadline of March 1st. And after that, the committee itself will vote on the site. Shovels will be in the ground by the end of this year is the plan. And ideally, ideally, it's estimated that the convention center will be up and running by the spring of 2026 and is projected to bring in 24,000 new visitors to Lincoln in its very first year. That uh, is a fairly aggressive timeline. Now, once this site selection is approved by the Assembled Lincoln Committee, does that have to get further approval then from the county board? Because Lancaster County is going to be officially the owner, if you will. Yeah, Lancaster County is the overseer of this. So Assemble Lincoln will vote to approve the site, and then presumably the county board will certify and approve that recommendation. That's the process that, that it goes through. Let's look at the calendar because we've got some interesting uh, events coming up very quickly, actually. Yeah, so this Monday, February 26th, we will have our Community Access Committee meeting. That's going to feature guest speaker Lincoln Transportation and Utilities Director Elizabeth Elliott, who will be there to discuss Lincoln on the move and Lincoln's plan to replace all lead water lines in the next 10 years. That'll be a really interesting one, so try and stop in. Also on the 26th, the evening, the Gen Link Liba's Young Professionals Speaker Series will kick off at Whitehead Oil Party Room from 5 to 6.30. So all of our young professionals out there are welcome to come to that. And then the next day, Tuesday, February 27th, we'll have our Coffee and Contacts hosted by Spectrum Reach. 
And just so you know, you can see all of the dates, locations, and times for our upcoming LIBA events and committee meetings on the LIBA website. That's www.liba.org. And of course, you can always email Carter. At, it's carter at liba.org and uh, ask him anything about it, and he'll get back with you very quickly. Well, Carter, uh, I've gotten some feedback on a topic that we discussed a little on the last Lincoln Business Beat, something called the Corporate Transparency Act, which you uh, did quite a bit of research on. But after going through it, you know, I probably had a dozen people say, uh, how onerous is that? And I said, well, from what I could tell, it's fairly onerous. But to be real honest, and I think we mentioned we needed to get an expert and boy, you've come up with uh, with one that knows exactly what's going on. Yes. So for our deep dive today, we are very happy to welcome in Will Ozaki from Woods Aiken Law Firm. He is going to use his expertise to further explain the Corporate Transparency Act, build off of last week's discussion, and tell us what we have in store. So that's coming up next. We'll do that in the deep dive. Husker fans, you've probably heard about NIL, name, image, and likeness, and now you can have an immediate effect on the success of our program. The 1890 Initiative is Nebraska's premier NIL company, and with your help, we can maximize our student-athletes' opportunities with NIL and prepare them for life after college. Nebraska's always been a leader in college athletics. Let's do the same with NIL. To learn more, visit 1890nebraska.com, where 100% of your donation goes directly to Husker student-athletes. That's 1890nebraska.com. Back at the Lincoln Business Beat, Corporate Transparency Act. Carter and I uh, talked about it a little bit last week, but we really need to have somebody that really knows what they're talking about. And Will Ozaki, an attorney at Woods Aiken Law Firm in Lincoln, is joining us. Will, welcome to the uh, Lincoln Business Beat. Yeah, thank you for having me. All right, Carter, where do you want to start? This uh, Corporate Transparency Act. As I mentioned earlier, I got a lot of questions after our, we, it was what, a 10, 15 minute discussion on it. Mm-hmm. But this thing is staring at virtually every business and pretty onerous the way it sounds. And it really crept up on us. You know, this thing was passed at the federal level. It, it, it had such a susceptibility to be taken off guard or to catch local business owners from across the country off guard who aren't always aware of what's going on. And so that's why it's so great to have Will in today um, to kind of give us some perspective on this. Will, if you just want to take it away, go into a little bit of your background, how you ended up at Woods Aiken, and then just hit the ground running on the CTA. Yeah. So I actually started with Woods Aiken um, this last September. I graduated law school in May and then uh, passed the bar in September, swore in in September. And so one of my first acts as an attorney was to do my own deep dive on the CTA and (laughs) figure out what our clients are going to have to deal with. Um, And so I I pretty much started on that when I started at Woods. I work um, on the transactional side, so I do with general corporate clients, general business services, and then I do some real estate and some mergers and acquisitions as well. So this is really going to affect all of our clients, Everyone. every single one of them. Um, well, and let's let's just put a little quick disclaimer out here. Woods Aiken is also the uh, uh, 
attorneys uh, that represent Liba in some things. Jerry Pigsley with Woods Aiken has been on the Lincoln business beat, and you're associated with Jerry through Woods Aiken, and that's why we've got you in here. But he's the one that said, Will's the, the expert on this. So what's the background on CTA, and I mean, why? So the CTA was enacted in 2021 as a part of the National Defense Authorization Act. Um, oh, so, so this was enacted back in 2021. Yep. But it didn't go into effect this year? It started, it, it became into effect January 1, 2024. So there was some lead up time, but like you were saying, people don't always pay attention to federal laws, particularly small businesses, because... It hasn't usually been on their radar. Yeah, that's interesting. So their intention was to give some time in advance for everybody to get prepared for the compliance, in a sense. Yeah, I okay. think they understood how burdensome it was going to be and wanted to give some lead up time. I think it didn't really get on people's radar until this last year when they were like, OK, 2024 is next year so okay. we who's the agency or what agency is on top of this so it's the u.s department of treasury's financial crimes enforcement network fincen is the name of the the agency that's going to be overseeing the so CTA. it's part of the treasury so just like the irs is part of the treasury it's a division there yep and their their goal is to combat money laundering uh tax fraud um other illegal activities that people use shell companies for. So mm -hmm. they want to know who, who are the people behind these shell companies. Um, so what's the base requirement for a business under the, de the having to uh, fill out these forms? So the, the definition of a reporting company is extremely broad and encompasses all corporations, limited liability companies, and any other entity that's formed with the secretary of state or a similar office. Um, so that means essentially any any entity that enjoys limited liability is going to be subject to the CTA's reporting requirements. And so what I was wondering along with that, I saw corporations <clears throat> were also included in that uh, definition. However, there was an exemption of some sort for larger corporations, larger companies. Can you explain what that means, how, how that criteria works out? Yeah, so there are, I think, 23 enumerated exceptions to that really broad rule. And the biggest one is probably going to be, it's called the large operating entity exception. Um, and so that exempts companies that have over 20 full-time employees, have a physical presence in the United States, and um, take in over $5 million in gross receipts a year, um, as reported on their previous tax return. Okay, so more than 20 employees, principal operating place in the United States. Just a physical presence. Just a, the, oh, yeah, just a physical, just a physical presence. presence in the United States. And then $5 million of their gross receipts within the United States okay. as reported on their tax return. Well, I guess, you know, you could see a lot of companies qualify for that under that exception. Um, How about things like nonprofits and... and uh, believe it's what accounting firms or tax prep firms that are also exempt so the exemptions really follow highly regulated areas um, so for instance accounting firms banks other financial inst institutions and tax exempt entities 
are going to be exempt under the rule, not necessarily nonprofit. So nonprofit is separate. You have to be a nonprofit to get tax exempt status, but you can be a nonprofit without tax exempt status. Huh. And so it's only those tax exempt entities um, that are going to be exempt. And under the definition section of these tax exempt entities, interestingly, it doesn't cover all tax exempt entities. So, like for instance, um, homeowners associations don't fall under that exemption. So they're going to have to report as well. Really? That's mm-hmm. interesting. I don't know how they'll feel about that. <laughs> what about LIBA? Uh, I'm not sure. LIBA's a nonprofit. Do... It's an organization. I don't think you're t- uh, is LIBA tax exempt. I'm... 50139, I believe. I, I believe that would fall under the exemption. I don't want to okay. say for certain without going in. He's not giving advice. No legal but... advice, but I would. my recollection is that it's anything under 501C. Okay. Anything that's exempt under there, but they're specific. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty particular on on who they're exempting. Can you talk a little bit about the accounting firms? Because from what I read, most accounting firms were exempt under this public accounting firms. It specifically said public. So could there be instances where accounting firms or just individual um, sole proprietor CPAs are not exempt or are all of them exempt? Um, I'm not a- entirely sure on that one. I haven't done a deep dive on the accounting exemption. Okay. Um, what has to be reported? What's what's the baseline information? And, and we've kind of narrowed this down to a lot of small business, independent businesses are going to have to file the requisite forms, mm-hmm. the requisite information. What are they looking for? So there will be three categories of of disclosure. So you have the beneficial owners who have to make the disclosure, the company applicants who have to make the disclosures, and then the company itself. So for the beneficial owners and the company applicants, they're looking for legal name, date of birth, residential address, and then an ID number from like a driver's license, a passport. Um, There are a couple other less used ID forms that they'll accept. So your ID number from that and then a a photocopy of that um, form. And then for the reporting companies, they're going to look for the entity name, and that includes any trade names that are used. They want the principal office address, Mm -hmm. um, the EIN, and then the jurisdiction of formation. So that would be like the Nebraska Secretary of State or Nebraska is the jurisdiction if if you filed. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So then my question is, you go to the FinCEN online portal. That's that's where you file this information, correct? Mm -hmm. Or is there any option to file if for some reason anybody wanted to physically, they could mail this stuff to some department agency? I'm not sure if about is about thing. mailing. I know for sure online you can go okay. through and it's So then when they upload the information is there any sort of confirmation that is given to them after they do that or is it just a wait and see if I'm in compliance if I get these fines if I get these charges against me what what is it what does it look like afterwards because I know we're very early on in the process but assuming that you have helped a few businesses in the compliance process was there a sort of confirmation from the agency like you're you're good 
I think they give you a confirmation that they've received it. I don't necessarily know that you're going to get a confirmation that says we've reviewed it and it's good. Wow. Um, well, time will tell. A lot of the government agencies do give you a, a, a sheet or a confirmation number that it has been uploaded so you can track the process. Yeah. And, and I would mm-hmm. assume that, I mean, that, that's no different than the IRS. Exactly. And, and when you file, they give you a notification that it's been received and, and accepted. So there you go. Uh, the, ter- the definition of a beneficial owner is one that has been a little concerning to me. Uh, and, and if you have multiple owners, if maybe an LLC or you've got a family corporation where maybe five or six people have a certain percentage of it, what designates someone as a beneficial owner? So there are two prongs to the beneficial ownership definition. The first is if you own 25% or more of a company. And the second is if you exercise substantial control over a company. For the 25% ownership, um, that's going to be on a fully diluted basis. So that's going to include options, warrants, things like that. Um, For less complex entities, it's going to be a little bit easier to understand if Two people own a, an LLC 50-50. Obviously, they're going to have 50% of it. Um, but like you said, as it gets more complex, diving into, so if you have, let's say, two people own an LLC 25-25 and then another LLC owns the other 50%, you have to look up into that other entity and see the owners of that entity and their ownership based on percentage of the original company if that oh, makes wow. sense. Yeah, so, so it can get really complex really <laughs> fast can um, we take a, a real life situation here uh i'm a member of an llc there are three of us we're third third and a third um so i'm assuming as the managing partner i would have to file for the company the llc each of us individually would have to file as beneficial owners uh, is is that a Am I understanding this correctly, or is there something more we need to do? I I think it's just going to be you as a beneficial owner in total. So you don't have to make a separate filing for if you own 25%. And if you're exercising substantial control, you still fall under that definition of a beneficial owner. So you're just making one filing. But both of my partners would have to file also. Yes. Mm -hmm. If it's 33, 33, 33. So each of the individuals who qualified, they have to individually file. You can't just make one filing of everybody. Here's all of everybody's information. You can't do that. You, it's reported on a company basis. So it is reported. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But the company has to compile all that information. Yes. And that's yes. where that's where it gets kind of complicated because I saw some really ridiculous numbers on, on the, the cost to companies to comply with this. It could be in the several thousand dollars. Yeah, I, I'm I think about it's time and effort mm-hmm. in, in compiling the information and actually filing. Absolutely, especially for those companies that are are complex and they don't meet any of those exemptions where they have complex structures. It could be very arduous. And that kind of leads to the biggest question and the toughest one for you to answer because you're not giving legal advice, but how do business owners comply with the CTA in the most cost-effective and time-efficient way possible? What do they do to make this process as easy as possible on themselves? I think that's a, 
might be kind of one or the other. I mean, you could do cost efficiency or you could do um, timely, you know, or, or quicker. Mm-hmm. I think cost efficient wise, the FinCEN Beneficial Ownership website has a lot of really great resources for small companies. Um, they have that small entity compliance guide, which will walk you through step by step. Um, it's a lot of pages and it's a lot of stuff to read through, but cost efficiency wise, it's a free resource and you can submit your ownership, beneficial ownership reports for free. Um, on the other hand, if you're more complex, um, you might want to look into getting some help from somebody um, to look over your structure just to make sure that everybody who needs to report is reporting. Because I think like you guys talked about last week, the penalties can be fairly severe. And the, the most important thing is don't wait until the end of the year now. As I understand it, any company or any uh, corporate entity that would be required, if they were in existence prior to January 1st, 2024, they have to file what? By the end of the year? Yep. So don't wait (laughs) until December 30th and try to start compiling this information. Yep. And I think, you know, the, the position that I think we've taken is you want to be ready to make the filing. Um, but you don't necessarily want to make it right now, if that makes sense, because there's an updating requirement. Mm-hmm. So if any of your beneficial ownership information changes within 30 days, you have to make another filing updating that information. Mm-hmm. So our thought is if you can wait till the end of the year, if you can be ready to make the filing, but wait that way, if something changes, you're not required to go back in and make that change. Mm-hmm. Um, additionally, this is brand new. And there's a lot of unsettled things where um, the, the, the statutes and the regulations and the FAQs aren't particularly clear. So with this new, this new law, we would kind of want to let the dust settle, figure out, you know. Look at different examples that take place throughout the year and then have a clearer picture of what they're looking for, how to comply, and all of these different uh, contingent circumstances that may apply to your own business. So then let's say just one hypothetical here. If you file and it's incorrect, uh, there's some mistake on it, and it comes to January 1st of next year. Do, and you might not know this because this is really early on in the process, but would they send out notice that you ha- you're not in compliance and then give you any sort of time to come into compliance? Or would they just say, you're not in compliance, you're going to be fine starting now, come into compliance as soon as possible? I'm not sure about the notice. I don't know how they're going to handle the enforcement mm-hmm. um, exactly. I do know that they've signaled that for this first year, they're going to be a little bit lenient on liens or okay. on, on fines and penalties because they want to, I mean, they want people to comply with this. Um, so I think to start out, they're going to be a little bit more forgiving. It's hard to say how long that will last, but <laughs> it, my understanding is that's what they've signaled. So for businesses, entities that have been in uh, existence prior to January 1st of this year, they've got till the end of the year. What about a business that, uh, organizes and files this year. How much time do they have? What happens if you start a company file in 2025 and beyond? Mm-hmm. So for this year, well, prior to prior to January 1, 2024, if you're in existence, you have until the beginning of next year, 2025. 
December 31st, 2024, we'll say. Okay. If you were formed January 1, 2024 to December 31st, 2024, you're going to have 90 days to make that filing. And then if you're formed January 1, 2025 and beyond, you have 30 days to make that initial filing. So there's a lot of stuff that's got to come together. Uh, here, if, whether you're an existing business thinking of starting a new one or just have started one, mm-hmm. uh, you've got to get on. Uh, Woods Aiken has a, a couple of online resources that uh, people can uh, get to. Um, let's uh, give them the, the website. I mean, this is, I've looked it over just briefly. Some pretty good information. How, how would uh, a LIBA member or any business owner get a hold of some of this information? Yeah, so it's available on our website at woodsaiken.com. Um, and then if you go up, there will be a little button that says News and Insights. If you click on that button, and then there's another button that goes to Publications and E-Briefs. Um, and this will be on that first page. Um, okay, so the the one that, that I just briefly at was uh, something that was put together in December of last year, uh, reporting requirement that went into effect January 1st of this year. Pretty uh, pretty good uh, overview, kind of uh, an outline, if you will, but then you've got the deeper dive uh, documents as well. Mm-hmm. All right, and, that, and again, that's woodsaiken.com. That's W-O-O-D-S-A-I-T, as in Tom, K-E-N.com. Will, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Yeah, pleasure Pleasure's all mine. Thank you so much for having me in. We, we may very well need to have Will back as this progresses. <laughs> I, I would imagine there's still, uh, is it fair to say that they're probably still be, are still refining some of the requirements, some of the possible uh, changes as uh, this implementation is being rolled out? Absolutely. I think um, the more they hear feedback on, on things that work and things that don't work, there's going to be plenty of changes to the things that are coming. Um, one thing I didn't mention is with the exemptions, there's the 23 listed exemptions, and then the Secretary of Treasury actually has the power to make new exemptions. Hmm, okay. um, so it'll be interesting to see if, if the Secretary of Treasury, you know, if people are up in arms about certain entities, the homeowners associations, you yeah. know, if they come back and say, hey, why do we have to do this? So if there's any beneficial change in what they're trying to do, would you let us know, <laughs> yeah, please? Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, we want to stay on top of this. We'll schedule you for a slot come November, just so we can have a thorough <laughs> or, update. Or sooner you. if there's something major that comes up. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Will Ozaki, an attorney with Woods Aiken, a law firm here in Lincoln, has been our guest today on the Deep Dive on the Corporate Transparency Act reporting requirements. You've been listening to the Lincoln Business Beat from the Lincoln Independent Business Association and KLIN Radio, reviewing and updating business owners and community members about what's happening in the business community in and around Lincoln. Along with LIBA Policy and Research Coordinator, Carter Teal, and today our special guest, Will Ozaki. I'm Mark Vail. Lincoln Business Beat is made possible by the 1890 Initiative. Visit 1890nebraska.com, where 100% of your donation goes directly to Husker student-athletes. Mm-hmm.